Hello there, it's Ed here. It's Friday, so normally we'd have a pod out, of course, but these are not normal times and the Premier League has done something that we never expected them to actually do. And they've taken a winter break, so we have two weeks without any football at all. But while Manchester United's players are off in Dubai, sunning themselves and perhaps doing a little bit of training, no question about that is waiting for no man. And we are going to bring you a special interview this week. So on the show, a guest and a nostalgia-filled episode. And I have to say, I thoroughly enjoyed this chat. It's been a tough time, of course, for United these past seven years, six and a half. It's a time when I think the promises of the club uh, and our hopes have been dashed in equal measure. It seems like there's been a never-ending supply of broken dreams. Every week, Paul and I seem to find a new way of uh, talking about Oli Solskjaer's team finding a new Nadir, a new low, a new worst performance since Ferguson left the club. And it's a measure of perhaps of how bad United have become, how complacent the club has been, and sometimes what little hope we have for the future. And of course, this is a measure of how spoiled we've become, spoiled we were through the Ferguson years when perhaps we didn't realise just how lucky we were. But if you're like me and, and you're uh, in your 40s, unfortunately, and you'll remember the tough times too, the tough times of the late 70s or the early 80s, mid 80s, when we were reduced to being a cup team, when we hoped for success amid many, many, all too many Liverpool Premier League or league titles. And one of the things that struck me about this conversation was Throughout the period of uh, lack of success from 77 to 86, which this, uh, this uh, writer covers, United didn't lack for an identity. The fans were there, Old Trafford was filled. It wasn't always great. It, it wasn't the financial boom of the current club, but it, it meant something. And, and it's the fans that did that. And um, in this book, Kesara Sarah by my guest Wayne Barton, I think you really get a sense of of um, Manchester United still meaning something despite not being successful. So my guest this week uh, is the author of more than a dozen books, m- most of them on Manchester United. Uh, and this one, Kesara Sarah, covers the period from 77 when Dave Sexton was appointed Manchester United manager through to 1986 when Ron Atkinson was fired and Ferguson took over. So anyway, enjoy this one. And here's my conversation with Wayne. So with me is Wayne Barton, who is uh, just about to publish his, uh, I think I'm right in saying, 16th book, Que Sera Sera, focusing on the time of Dave Sexton and Ron Atkinson at United. Uh, Wayne, uh, welcome to... uh, Now, no question about that. Last time we had you on, it was called Rankcast. I know it's going to take some getting used to. I'm a long-time listener as well, Ed, so, you know, you've thrown me off guard with this. Um, yeah, well, uh, I, I hope it's the of, same. Um, fan TV and stuff like that, we didn't really feel like it, it fit what we do anymore. But, uh, <laughs> but people get used to it in the end. Yeah, exactly. If they don't like change, then stuff them. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, 16 books, that's um, that's quite a career you've, uh, you've built here of uh, writing mostly about football. Yeah, mostly. Um, hopefully it's not a case of um, quantity over quality, as I'm 
told by um, Goldie and friends and family on a few occasions. Uh, not all of them about Manchester United, but most of them. Um, and, you know, over recent years, I've tended to concentrate more on United because, right. you know, just because the opportunity is there, really. It's, it is crazy for me. I mean, we've known each other for years, Ed, and, you know, it's crazy for me to even have books published you know what i mean so so to continue to have that is um it really is a dream come true and um yeah it's amazing well congratulations on the the new one um kind of fascinating period for united this one and not, not one of overwhelming success uh, i suppose um at a period when united were a cup team i guess we'd like to become that again and uh, and then uh, move towards winning titles um so um, what what made you think about writing about Sexton and Atkinson, and why the two of them together in, in this one book? Well, yeah, that's an interesting one. What I originally, originally looked at doing was a, a book on the twenty six year wait between you know for a league title from sixty seven mm-hmm. to ninety three, and I was contacted by BT Sport, you know, to do the, the film on the relegation right, yeah. era. So I, I, I basically I looked at what the work that I'd already done. And obviously, it's such a big period of time that I, I I always knew I was running the risk of condensing it way too much into one book. And I thought, if if the sort of period up until Docket is sacking was one book in itself, then possibly the the following era, Atkinson and Sexton, was another book. You know, without sort of taking it into the Ferguson realm and. When you get into it, there is a lot to unpack in the Sexton era and and the Atkinson one. And I, I know you will know Tony Park is a, a United historian, mm-hmm. um, Mr. Mujak on Twitter, and he's always been on at me. Um, we whenever we have conversations, he always insists to me that Dave Sexton needed a little bit more credit than the reputation that he's got. Um, the the reputation that he's got for for the dour football that right. his team played. So I thought, do you know what? Yeah, I'll I'll go into that. I'll give it a, a bit of a fairer analysis if I can. And, and do you know, I, it has been um, an eye-opening experience for me as a as a fan going back and revisiting some of those Sexton, um, the Sexton years because maybe not. I mean, the football wasn't any better from everything that I've seen and everything that I've read. But the reasons for why it wasn't uh, are very interesting. And I, I thought, yeah, I thought the Sexton and Atkinson era, particularly the, the Atkinson one, because it was so compelling in terms of the character that he was and the football that the team played. And like you said, that kind of nostalgic hope that we, I mean, <laughs> six years ago, we would have been dreading going back into an era that was like the Atkinson era. And now that we're, <laughs> we're praying for something similar, right. just for the entertaining football. So yeah, it's compelling from that aspect. I know a lot of people think when they look back at... Um, these kind of periods that because there aren't titles to write uh, to write about or, or or read about that they're not as interesting. But I I find that completely the opposite. The mechanics of how we rebuild um, and how it went wrong and and why it went wrong. I, I find those kind of things really fascinating. Yeah, and you you lay that out in some some detail for for both Atkinson and Sexton in the book. I was kind of interested about Sexton. I mean, you, you said um, you know, his football was characterised as dull, and you challenged that a little bit, and perhaps, you know, pragmatic and counter-attacking, um, and perhaps more generous words you use about his time. I'm, I'm kind of interested in what you think about why United appointed him. Um, after Doherty, such a, a manager with such a charisma and a side-built with such flair and 
Sexton appeared to be both, both personally and, and in terms of his football, the complete opposite of that. Yeah, and I think it was a deliberate thing when I talked to Martin Edwards about it. He said, I mean, he said quite candidly that Sexton was um, primarily hired because he wasn't as outspoken as Ducky. Um I wouldn't say that was the number one quality. Obviously, his coaching um, background and, and his, his ability on that score was the primary one, but it certainly did appeal that he wasn't uh, as media savvy as, as Ducky. And I think really it was that sort of period of time that made us all reflect and realise that a United manager needs to have a certain personality. They need to be able to handle the media. Um, and I think, you know, Sexton was a very nice guy. As for why it, it didn't quite work for him, I think there's, as, as you know, Ed, having read the book, there's a certain amount of conflict in, in the way that the football was taught. There's a certain responsibility that the players have and the, the way that the managers would tend to... Um, assume that they already knew the basics the principles you always there's one common phrase that a lot of the players say you know i i knew that i was good enough to play for manchester united that's why they got me so there's kind of like an assumed capability there and sexton was trying to drum the assumed part in and i think that's what it was a little bit similar to van gaal in a way that they're trying to um, teach uh, granny to suck eggs you know they, they, those players knew that they were capable footballers they didn't need to be told gordon hill for example didn't need to be told about his responsibilities to defend obviously he was aware of that he was a top level footballer but in the rhythm of that football team his contribution to the side was much um, better deployed as a striker and there's a famous example of Martin Buchan clipping him around the ear because he came back for a corner and um, people have wrongly assumed that over the years as sort of Gordon getting in the way he was told to go back and help out but Buchan was telling him we don't need you up here you know get back and um, get back and attack get back up there for the counter-attack so as far as Sexton I mean that wasn't under the Sexton era by the way that was under under Okay, but it was an example of where the players were in terms of accommodating a player like Hill. Right. And and Sexton went back the other way. He was trying to teach Hill, showing him the the wing uh, the the videos of the Hungarian wingers, a little bit like um the the famous example of Moyes with Ferdinand and Jagielka, you know, yes. trying to teach them. Although although obviously Hungarian wingers are a lot more. Um, it's a better comparison for Hill than than maybe Ferdinand and Jagielka. A lot more, um, a lot less um, insulting anyway. Yeah. But yeah, I, th- I think that that's where it was for me in terms of. I felt that there was a a little bit of a misunderstanding for Sexton, and I wanted to go back and correct it. And like I said, I, I haven't come to any greater conclusion that his football wasn't dull. But I think hopefully when people are reading it, they might come away with a bit of a better appreciation for what he was actually trying to do. I mean, he certainly wasn't a bad coach. He came with a great reputation, a great history of, of work that he'd done. Um, and it was unfortunate, really, that it didn't work out because he was such a nice guy. You can imagine that um, it would have been better for United almost if if you know if it had worked out. Yeah, oh, look, great reputation for, for youth coaching as well, Sexton. Uh, under England, under-21 mm. manager for... So many years, and after he left United, I, I think he won the under twenty one UEFA Championship a couple of times, didn't he? So yeah, um, yeah. And the thing, the, the, sorry to interrupt that one, but yeah, and Atkinson even said to me, 
if he, he had a, a massive amount of respect for Sexton. In fact, he called Sexton the best coach he had ever seen. And if he had not been so insulted, if he if he had if he hadn't had so much respect for him, and he didn't think that Sexton would be so insulted, he would have had him as his number two at Old Trafford. Which you know I found baffling. You know <laughs> you couldn't imagine that happening now, but um, it was interesting nonetheless. Sexton left United without winning a trophy, but came came quite close twice. So the seventy nine Cup final, yeah. I, I guess, uh, within a a kick of winning that. I mean, how how much do you think that affected him as a manager and and United as a team at the time? Really needed that trophy. Yeah, no, absolutely. You you're so right with that, and it's interesting that we're talking about this the day after the the Manchester derby. And that, I referred to that as um, a sliding doors moment for Oli because, you know, if Mata takes that free kick later on, we might go to penalties. A little bit like Wolf McGuinness is a bit dogged by the semi-finals that he reached and he never got to a final. And it was a little bit like that for Sexton, particularly in the 79 final. I think when he got to 2-2, he had Brian Greenoff stripped off and ready to come on. And Brian was ready to come on and sort of like delay the time a little bit give them because it was like the last minute or something so they were trying to kill kill the game off but Sexton to his I guess to his eternal regret he decided to just hold fire on the substitute I think he was waiting to do that on the 90th minute you know after the, the final whistle instead of killing the tempo of the game right there and then and um it was fateful because obviously Arsenal went straight down and scored um which yeah, I mean it's a how could you have told a game like that in the momentum and the way that it was going because it seemed like it was all with United, yeah. Um, so, so he was very unlucky with that, and I don't think the 1980 with the title run. I think that was more. Um, it was more clear cut that it was Liverpool's title. I know it went very close to the last couple of games, but United were never in control of that, and I don't think that they had a team that people thought were going to win the title. So, um, but he did come close, and you do wonder. I mean, title the trophies do have a profound. Um, effects on the way that some managers are remembered. I mean, obviously, Dockett is fondly remembered, and he only won one FA Cup, and that basically covers up for the relegation, doesn't it? But, um, you know, because people talk about that as a glorious side more than they do it being a relegation side. Right. And and Sexton had nothing really, had nothing to fall back on, nothing to to prove that he's um, apart from the legacy of the youth players that he left, that he doesn't get the credit for. Duxbury, Whiteside. Those kind of players that were right, coming which, through, which they were Atkinson all. Re- would go on to benefit from. Exactly, yeah. So, and like you were saying earlier, he was a great youth coach and he deserves a lot of credit for that. Um, so, yeah, it is unfortunate that all the good things that he did were um, <laughs> completely forgotten and absorbed into the good reputation that Atkinson got. Yeah. I mean, I guess the the seventy nine eighty season, as close as United had come for, for some time, a couple of points to Liverpool, but. Uh, and a great Liverpool side as well in yeah. that period, um, yeah. and, and I suppose mirrored a few years later when Fergie managed to, in the eighty nine season, get to second. You know, and, exactly. Yeah, yeah. very yeah. close then. Um, Fergie, of course, was given the time to to go on and and uh, build his great sides. Um, I mean, Sexton got sacked. United weren't doing great in the following season. Um, and and the club decided to swing the other way again and bring Atkinson in, who who hadn't really, I guess, had a, an awesome coaching career to that to date to that point. You know, Oxford, West Brom, but he built a exciting West Brom side. Is that the thing that motivated United to go for Atkinson? 
Well, yeah, and he wasn't first choice as well. I think there was Bobby Robson, um, Laurie McMenemy was famously the first choice. Right. And Sexton was sacked because Edwards thought he had McMenemy in the bag. <laughs> and um, and then he, he decided he wanted to stay at Southampton. And so he, Edwards had to go sort of crawling around the clubs to see if he could get, um, get a, a good sort of replacement for that. And Ron Saunders at Villa was one who was mentioned. Those talks never really went anywhere. Bobby Robson was too loyal to the uh, is it the Cobbold brothers who was who owned Ipswich at the time. Right. So there were a couple of managers there, and then Atkinson. You know, he got West Brom into Europe a few times, and I th- think he told me Atkinson that his his ambition was to reestablish United as a European force. So I guess that that was kind of where the mindset linked. You know that the. the the West Brom had done quite well in, into getting into Europe, and obviously, they, whenever they played against United, they'd given themselves uh, given a really good count of themselves. They won five three at Old Trafford in a famous game, um, which you know Atkinson was very um, magnanimous in his um, praise for for Sexton, <laughs> if bewilderingly on, on the Old Trafford pitch afterwards. If you watch the big match. Um, Atkinson's giving sex and praise, having just tonked his team at Old Trafford. So there was a lot of that. And like you said, the personality of him, the bravado, um, they they were, again, looking to get away from that um, that kind of personality that Sexton had. It's important to add here as well that Martin Edwards had become chairman in the meantime after Louis Edwards had died. And this was his first major appointment. And he was a little bit reluctant to sack Sexton. But the, he was also reluctant to sack Doherty as well. He was a junior director at the time, and his father really liked Doherty. And I think if it had been up to the Edwards, Doherty wouldn't have been sacked. That only came after Busby and some of the, the wives of the, the directors had complained about the conduct. So they reluctantly sacked him. So I think having seen the relationship that Tommy had with his father, he wanted kind of like that kind of brash character again, you know, to sort of... To, to have a good relationship with and by all accounts Edwards and Atkinson did have a great relationship and you know Atkinson was a larger than life character and I think he really did suit United even if he was third or fourth choice he came in and he was uh, he was definitely the right man for the job yeah and, and perhaps one of his first acts was to to make one of the best signings in the history of the club in Brian Robson famously signed his contract on the pitch with Martin Edwards and, and Ron Atkinson with a what looks like a fold-out table. Uh, <laughs> the, the the social media of the day, I guess. Um, <laughs> but, but that would prove to be something pretty inspirational. If you want more from us, the people what brought you this here podcast, you can follow us on various social media platforms. Ed is on Twitter at NQATPod. You can find us on Facebook at uh, No Question About That Podcast, formerly United Rant. Cheers, Facebook. Or my personal platform of choice, you can follow us on Instagram at NQATPod. Atkinson said um, there was a little bit of reticence over paying that fee for him, one and a half million pounds at the time. In fact, it caused Busby to resign from the board. He was so against it. Um, and he butted heads over the, the sort of wages for Peter Shilton with um, Doherty over the years. He, he didn't want to pay a, a top wage for a goalkeeper. Uh, he just thought the money in the game was going crazy. So the, the Robson transfer actually caused Busby to resign from the board. And um, Atkinson had convinced Edwards, he said, you're going to get 
seven years of him as a midfielder and then seven years of him as a centre back, <laughs> which is like fourteen. He's asking fourteen years of a, of service, which we actually got from from Robson. Although they were almost all exclusively played as a midfielder, weren't they? Um, <laughs> he called him solid gold, and he really was, wasn't he? I mean, people forget how good Robson was they, because we didn't win a league title for for those thirteen years that he was there for the first sort of twelve thirteen that he was there, um, and he never got it in his prime. People forget how brilliant he was. This is a player who, when Maradona was on the same pitch, couldn't get his game going because Robson was a dominant factor. Mm. Um, He was an absolutely incredible player that I think if anyone watched him live or if if anyone watched him in his prime and they were, let's say, my adolescence was watching Eric Cantona and, and he walks into any Manchester United side of mine... It would be the same for those who watch Robson in his prime. Right, he yeah. walks into every every single team because of how, how good he was. I guess in a way, it's a dirty comparison to make, but a little bit like Steven Gerrard, I guess. Do you know for Liverpool Ooh. in that he did in that he didn't win a league title for so long? At least Robson ended up with a couple of medals. But do you know what I mean? He was such a dominant dominating presence yes. that you know now when Liverpool fans they they will put Gerard in their best ever team. And I look back at I looked at that and say, well, what about Sooness? But you understand the comparison that I'm trying to yeah, make yeah, with that. And yeah, and Robson had the the all round game as well. And such a sweet yeah. foot, his passing, the fantastic engine and the commitment, the, the commitment levels that were too great, in fact, because he got himself injured. All yeah. too often as a result, he could score goals with either foot and his head. Um, yeah, fantastic player. We would uh, give an awful lot for Robson today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. One and a half million. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess Atkinson's two biggest moments with United were the two cup finals, the 83 cup final that went to the replay and then the, the Whiteside final in 85. Um, I mean, it was, it was very close to, to not winning that 83 very, very close, yeah. that final, that uh, that Brighton gave such a good account of themselves. Yeah, Smith must score in the, in the last minute of the first game. Yeah, I mean, and they'd also got to the Milk Cup final that year as well. And, you know, they, they were doing they were doing things right. It did take them a little while to get into, into the swing of things. And I think, you know, for the first couple of years, Atkinson was really trying to get the players that he wanted, but he couldn't get them at the right time. I think he got Arnold Muren in, and he had the idea of pairing Muren with Alan Brazil to recreate their, their Ipswich connection. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, by the time he gets Brazil, Muren's over the hill and Brazil's knackered. <laughs> Do you know, so he was never able to get the, the, the parts right. But having said that, the 83 side was a cultured side. It was very, um, you know... You had Muren in, you had you had the likes of Robson who was um blossoming at that time. Wil- Wilkins as well, yeah. Very cultured, very good football inside. By the time you get to eighty five, he's got Strachan and Olsen on the wings, but it's absolutely changed the dimension in that kind of side. And obviously I know Whiteside had broken through in eighty three, but it really matured. You had McGraw as well coming in in eighty five as well. So it was in a weird way in, in just five years he he created two great sides that had very different identities right. about them. So um yeah, he, he does deserve a lot of credit for that. I think as well, eighty five stands out as the, the biggest one because of how good Everton were at the side. I know you mentioned a great Liverpool side. This was the best ever Everton side, wasn't it? Yes, they won the right. yeah. they won the league. They were gonna win the Cup Winners' Cup. Their last um, trophy, so, I believe. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh no, yeah. cup final, cup final in. Uh, the, yeah, no, we we forget about that one. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I can't absolutely erase that one from history. That one um, it didn't happen because Cantona didn't play in that yeah, one. That's so, right. um, <laughs> but yeah, um, yeah, but the, it was the greatest um, Everton side ever. So it tells you a lot about the achievement of United at that side at that time as well. Because obviously they went on to win the the, the sort of ten in a row um, at the start of the following mm-hmm. season. So that that was a there was beginnings of a great United side mm. it would be uh, neglectful to not mention the Barcelona game in 84 as well I know I, I said that he kicked uh, that Robson played as I kicked Maradona that doing Robson a massive mis- disservice Robson played Maradona off the pitch although there was um, a rumour that Maradona wasn't 100% shall we say at Old Trafford but that was a, a great night at Old Trafford as well and I, I made the point in the book that some some events in football transcend trophies. You know, yes, you have memorable yeah. nights. A little bit like, you know, Ollie. <laughs> it's a bad comparison. I mean, Paris. But yeah, but that Paris is a game that we're going to remember for the rest of our lives, you know, because of how incredible it was and what a, a remarkable turnaround. Yeah. And that was kind of, it was like that for the, the Barcelona game. Although Barcelona was different because we, we just outplayed them and we were just... There was a force of nature in Brian Robson on that night. But yeah, I think probably the crowning moment of, of Atkinson's era would have been 85 in yeah. the final. Because I, I didn't realise it. I mean, that was the, the first cup final I remember as, as a kid. But whenever I've looked back at it and watched it, it looked, it's a pretty... It's not the best game to watch. You don't appreciate the tension of the time. Um, which is something you know that you can't appreciate when you're going back. She didn't live through that experience. You can't appreciate. It's like kids today if they went back and watched the '99 semi-final replay. You don't really appreciate the sort of build-up and what it what it was bubbling towards. So um, it's bewildering to me to read the reports at the time saying that it was the best FA Cup final ever. Do you know what I mean? So I'm like watching that and thinking, I don't think so. But yeah, you know when. Particularly, United have played in possibly the Brighton game was better, the Arsenal game was better, right. the Liverpool game was better. <laughs> so it's a bit of a crazy one, but yeah, um, certainly in terms of achievement, it was uh, Atkinson's his, crown. His biggest blow. moment, yeah. I mean, one of the one of the other things, I, I guess, one of the legacies he left at United was the the culture of partying and drinking as well. The the club of Robson, Whiteside, and McGrath, and a, a few others that. Like, uh, enjoyed a few liveners after the game, um, which you talk about in your book as well. And I, I guess th- that kind of dates it a little bit because most footballers today are teetotal and they wouldn't think mm. about that at all. Um, but uh, there's a very specific culture that Atkinson left behind at United after his time. Yeah, and, and what's interesting to me, it was of its, of its time, and I always, my the starting point for my argument was, well, what would you do if you eradicate that drinking culture? You know, yes, Robson was the best player on the pitch on a Saturday, despite seven pints on a Friday, but how good would he have been without seven pints? That was my argument going into it. But so many of the players were talking, even Gary Bailey was a teetotal. I, I, was, I put that argument to, me, to him and he said, uh, well, if you didn't have those sessions, you wouldn't have had the togetherness, um, the, the the close-knit group, the close-knit friendships of that group would, would not have been anywhere near as strong. 
you needed that kind of thing for them to get on as well, um, for, for Robson to be the leader of the pack in the way that he was. And I found that a compelling argument because those are the sort of intangible things that, you know, when you're trying to find the intangibles, you're like, oh, what would have made that extra 1% or 2% to, to get United over the line and get them a league title? And I say 1% or 2% because that's the kind of phrase that the players would use or Atkinson would use. You know, we weren't that far away. It was only mm. a couple of things. And I'm always thinking, well, if it's marginal, then then seven pints not being drunk on a Friday night is pretty much a, my, my a big margin. margin. Yeah, yeah. But they, but they were saying but the compensatory effect in terms of what it had in, on team spirit and togetherness, and it probably does make sense in a way, you know, because you've got the likes of McGraw and Whiteside, who, and the, I mean, those three weren't, they were by far the only three who were drinking, but they were obviously the, the three biggest names and probably the three best players. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, it's a very interesting one. I still don't know where I, I stand on it. I do I probably, the sensible option of without the seven points, they would have gone on to, to win a league title. But um, I do like the the argument that, that it did create well, a togetherness yeah, because yeah. that's, that's what that's what we remember about that side, isn't it? The fact that they were together. Um, right. So I, I do I do like that romantic um, assessment of it. And what, one of the things that I guess I mean it was a contributory factor towards derailing Atkinson's time at United was the sale of Mark Hughes, controversial mm. at the time, and and eventually brought him back, of course. But um, one one of the factors you you mention as 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 sort of being part of his downfall and one of the reasons why he didn't, he wasn't able to make the next step. Yeah, and as well at the time, see, when he signed, when he sold him, he brought in Peter Davenport, didn't he, as a, as a replacement, which was not um, the best example, considering we'd already gone and bought Gary Bertles from Forest, and that hadn't gone very well. Um, so it was an interesting one. Yeah, Hughes was a fan favourite, and he, and he went. Atkinson, I think, had never rated. Very early on in his career, Atkinson didn't think Hughes would make a footballer. And although he did swallow that later on and admit that he was wrong, I think there was a little bit of him that wanted to be proven right, you know, that this is going to still be my team and I still think I'm doing it the right way. And when there was that standoff with, you know, Hughes needed a new contract and knew that um, he could get a lucrative one elsewhere, they made a good excuse to cash in and get a lot of money at the time. And... I think from then it did it really did start the spiral of uh, everything falling apart because even though United did start well the following season and got those 10 wins under the belt, for me it was a, a case of... Hughes was used sold in 86 or was it 85 we was sold? I think it was 85. So, so yeah, so it was the year before Atkinson was sacked. So the the point, yeah, part of the um, the reason for his downfall was... Yeah, that's right, because Davenport did come in and, and they were playing well at, at first. You had Davenport and Stapleton up front who were playing well. And Whiteside, obviously everyone was playing well in the, the first 10 games. Everything looked like they were going to go, um, all the signs pointed to them winning the league. But as was Atkinson's tendency to do, when there were injuries, he would bring in short-term players. And instead of, um, instead of dipping into the youth as, you know... Ferguson would do or other managers might do. He got more um, reliant on these short-term players, you know, like a Garth Crooks mm-hmm. and the Terry Gibson and the Colin Gibson and players um, players like that who were 
basically became like nooses around Atkinson's neck because you had a player like he brought in John Silverbeck to play at right back and that really upset Mike Duxbury, for example, who had already contended with um, John Gidman and was unhappy that you've got this Danish player who, who was playing part-time and he's been brought in to take his place when Duxbury thought he should have gone straight back into the side. So you had a few players like that. I think he had a falling out with Stapleton because he asked Stapleton to play at centre-half. You remember he famously brought Mark Higgins in off an insurance payment. <laughs> and there are a few gambles like this that went horribly wrong in a short period of time. And I think that started to alienate the, the senior members of the squad who thought, you know, we're not very happy with you at the moment, Ron. And even though, I mean, the, the majority of the squad did stick with him, a few of them were alienated enough to think, I'm not, you know... I think he got to the point where, because he'd been five years without a title they thought he's probably going to be gone here, so we'll just hang on a little bit and just bide our time, yeah. which, I mean, is, isn't is the best professional attitude to have at United, but, but that's the way that it was at that point. Worldwide. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and that's, that's the way that it came in, like, 86, so it, the wheels were coming off rapidly, and... Um, yeah, and then I don't, he couldn't he couldn't turn it around. He just couldn't turn it around, which was a shame because obviously then you look on any management period is always defined by how it ended, isn't mm-hmm. it? Really, and um, and it was a real shame for Atkinson that it ended so spectacularly poorly because people remember the implosion more than they do the good times. Mm. Well, look, this has been really fascinating dive into into an interesting period in United's history. Um, I really recommend the book. And when when's it out? Um, we've got this out on the 9th of March. 9th of March. Great. Well, congratulations on the new book. And um, I, I suspect it's a period of history that many of our listeners, they're all young uns, you know, because <laughs> we're the hipster show, honest. <laughs> being, being, <laughs> well, being in our 40s ourselves, you know. <laughs> and one thing that I hope that people will take from it is, uh, there's um, a bigger analysis in this about United's identity mm-hmm. than I think has been in any other United literature. And I'm not saying that's a sort of big up my own research, but everyone always looks at United's identity and style of play as starting and ending with Busby and Ferguson. And I think that there's a lot in this book that will open people's eyes to say that these, that's not strictly true. There's a way of United playing that is as good as it's ever been in United's history, that doesn't have to follow the pattern of those managers, doesn't have to be hamstrung by the in, you know by being in the shadow of those managers, because I think that's right. the big problem that the, the, the successors of both Busby and Ferguson have struggled with. There is an identity there that the United supporters can get on board with as long as you do it the right way. And I think, I don't want to give too much away in terms of spoilers for the book, but, um, you know, there's a complete chapter dedicated to um, how, you know, it doesn't come from Busby and Ferguson. There's a definite pattern of play um, so long as, you know, you follow the right steps. And (laughs) so long as you get the backing as well, (laughs) which is also proof, yeah. Questions that um, we can can ask today, of course, with, uh, you know, still still questions about what the identity Ollie wants to build and and whether he'll get Mm. the backing uh, in the week that United have spent somewhere between 50 and 70 million on Bruno Fernandes. Perhaps he's going to get that backing. We'll yeah. Oh, well. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. I mean, I'm. I'm not sure with Ollie. Um. But you know, it, because I am 
one of those maybe an infuriating voice to you Ed that you know because he's an old you know legend I, I do have a little bit more patience for him than than I certainly a little bit more patience for him than I did with Mourinho but then I, I oh, tend no, to be patient. I, I agree with... I mean we're uh I think both Paul and I are big supporters of Ollie. We really would like it to work out. I, I suspect it won't, yeah. but uh, we'll, we'll find out on that one. Yeah, that's, <laughs> I, I agree. I agree with you. Well, thank you very much and uh, best of luck with the launch of the book. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll have you back on when you, um, you produce your next one in, in six months' time or so, I bet. Well, I've got my, um, funnily enough, I've written the uh, a biography of Eric Cantona, which is out mm-hmm. on April the 2nd. So that's um, not six months, but it's, that's the life of a, of a writer. You sort of bury yourself away for a year, do a couple of things, and then they, they come out like London buses, and then you do nothing else for, for another year. Do you know what I mean? It's a little <laughs> bit like that. So Great. Uh, thanks a lot, and um, yeah, cheers. Thanks for that.